The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 26 of Things Are About To Get Weird. If you're a regular listener, thank you so much for tuning in for another instalment of the podcast. And if you're new, here's what you can expect from the show. Our episodes are dedicated to strange but true tales of all descriptions. I cover everything from shocking true crime cases full of bizarre twists and turns to the wild stories of people who have lived extraordinary lives. We also get spooky from time to time with tales of the paranormal or unexplained happenings and the odd weird phenomenon too. Essentially, I chat about the kinds of stories that you'd expect to hear if you were catching up with a friend and they asked you, wanna hear something weird? And I am so happy that you're here with me for the ride. Today, I have a real treat for you as this story has a little bit of everything. Scandal, glamour, fraud, and one very dramatic plot twist. This tale deserves to be turned into a movie. I actually can't believe it hasn't been already, and as I said during our episode about Thierry Tilly, if any filmmakers happen to be listening to this episode, here's an idea on me. This is the story of Violet Charlesworth the early 1900s socialite whose life took even more bizarre turns than Anna Delvey's. If you found the documentary Inventing Anna interesting, I have a feeling you'll find Violet's story just as fascinating. But just before I launch into the story, I have a little update to share with you. Since I launched the podcast, I've been asked a few times whether I have a Patreon page, and I decided to finally set one up. Don't worry at all though, absolutely nothing about the podcast is changing and our episodes will always be free. But if you wanted to and are able to, as I know the world is a very weird place right now, then I would be hugely grateful if you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber. There are no outrageous tiers or anything like that. I've actually left the monthly amount blank, so if you do choose to sign up, you can choose to pledge whatever amount you like. If you would like to support the podcast in this way, it would be incredibly helpful in my mission to keep putting out these weekly episodes for you all. I love creating this podcast more than anything. And on average, it takes about three days to produce an episode from start to finish. So your support in any form, whether it's shares, listens, or subscribing via Patreon means the world to me. There will be some occasional bonus content over there, perhaps Q&As or similar. But as I say, our episodes will remain free and available to everyone. A huge and sincere thank you to anyone who checks out the Patreon the link will be in the show notes for this episode. Right, without further ado, allow me to properly introduce you to the subject of today's astonishing story, Miss Violet Charlesworth. Violet was born in the market town of Stafford, which is in the West Midlands region of England, in January of 1884. Her mother was named Miriam Davies and her father was David Charlesworth an insurance agent who we know almost nothing about. 
She was the youngest of her parents' children and had at least three living siblings that we know of and was initially given the first name of May when she was born, but this was later changed to Violet. During her childhood, the family lived in and around various parts of the city of Derby, which is in the East Midlands, until they made the fateful move to North Wales in the early 1900s. Now, as you may remember, if you've listened to some of our early episodes, I know North Wales very well and spent a lot of time there in my own childhood and teenage years. So when I first started researching this story, it was extra strange to know that so much of it took place in these locations that are so familiar to me. Starting with the seaside town of Rill, which is where the family first settled after moving to Wales. Their life was one of luxury and Violet in particular, who was a teenager by this point, quickly became known in the local area for being somewhat of an it girl. A social butterfly who wore all the finest and most expensive clothing and travelled in the most stylish cars of the day. Much like with the socialites of today, the press started to take a keen interest in Violet's lifestyle and would report on her various outings and fashion choices. And all of this attention seemingly increased once the family moved to a grand manor house in nearby St Asaph. From the outside, it looked like Violet lived a charmed life with a great deal of wealth and status and attention from potential suitors. But in reality, much of what she had had not simply been afforded to her by her father's business successes, nor via money passed down through her family. Along with her mother and sister, Violet had begun spinning a web of deceit and false promises that would ultimately end in her dramatic and untimely death. Or would it? Let me explain. It all began in the year 1900, when Violet was just 16 years old. Violet's mother, Miriam, had met with an affluent man named Dr Barrett, and she convinced him that both Violet and her eldest daughter were set to inherit a fortune of £75,000 once this older sibling turned 21. This sum is significant to our ears in 2023, of course, but back then it was a truly staggering amount of money. With our current levels of inflation, we're talking the equivalent of several millions of pounds. The idea behind flaunting this great expectation of future wealth was that it would make both Violet and her sister seem even more desirable as a potential spouse and encourage the man in question to try and win one of them over, hopefully through gifts of money or expensive goods. And then in turn, these gifts would help to elevate their status and make them appear every inch the rich and prosperous heiresses they claim to be. So it became almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. In the case of Dr Barrett, the story takes a tragic twist. As sadly, Violet's elder sister, who I believe was also named Miriam based on a copy of the 1891 census that I found, did not live to see her 21st birthday. I couldn't find any further details about her passing as most articles seem to skim past it, which is really sad. But it seems that Violet and her mother were prepared to continue on with their plan, and before long, they had worked out their next move. Most modern sources say that the next man Violet met was named Alexander MacDonald, 
who was so enamoured with her that he promised to present her with £150,000 once she turned 25. Now, by this point, Violet was 18, so there would be seven years to go before she would receive this promised fortune. And to some people, this made her look like someone worth knowing, someone worth being on the right side of, by the standards of society at that time at least. Enter Martha Smith a well-off widow from back in Derby. Through what I can only imagine were some very persuasive meetings, Violet's mother Miriam managed to convince Martha that her daughter was someone worth investing in, if you will. Martha ended up agreeing to lend the pair hundreds of pounds, which today would be equivalent to thousands, presumably with the view of her being paid back with interest once Violet's projected fortune came to fruition. And much like with Anna Delvey, this money provided by Martha was enough to keep Violet and her family living the opulent lifestyle they liked to portray to others, who would then in turn spoil her by way of winning favour. And you can see how this cycle kept going and going and going, and it seemed that Violet was only spurred on by the success of these deceptions, and kept adding new benefactors into the mix. By around 1907-1908, the Charlesworth family had ended up setting up a shop in Rill, and it was at this time that the fabrications spread about Violet's prospects and status had become more outlandish than ever. The family started circulating the story that Violet was in fact the goddaughter of a famous British army officer named General Charles Gordon, which I'm guessing explains why in some articles she's referred to as Violet Gordon Charlesworth. Now, General Gordon had actually been killed in action back in 1885 while serving in Sudan, and given his notoriety, this was a well-known fact amongst the public. This is probably why the family chose the general as Violet's fictional godfather, because he wasn't around to set the record straight. Plus, General Gordon had previously served in the Welsh county of Pembrokeshire, so this existing link to Wales made the Charlesworth claim seem that bit more credible. But what did all of this have to do with their wider scheme? Well, it served as yet another string to Violet's bow in terms of her play of pretending to be this expectant heiress. As the family claimed, she was due to inherit £100,000 from the general's estate once she turned 25. As expected, this only attracted more people towards her. For example, there's a record of another doctor, this time a real man named Edward Hughes Jones, who Violet promised to marry and who ended up gifting her somewhere in the region of £5,000. And all the while, she was using this money to buy expensive cars and clothes, but also to invest in the stock exchange as well as in jewellery, including diamond tiaras, which sounds like something from a rich girl movie trope. But Violet was living this for real. At the time, the average wage was around just £1 per week but Violet's annual spending sat at approximately £4,000. And bear in mind that none of this figure included paying back any of the loans she'd been given from people like Martha Smith. In total, it's estimated that from 1900 to 1909, Violet was gifted the equivalent of around £2 million worth of cash and luxury items in today's money, and had spent or invested the vast majority of it. 
Now, all of this is pretty wild. I mean, as someone who can't even bring myself to tell a little white lie because it makes me feel so bad and so anxious, I can't imagine constructing this whole fake lifestyle in order to get more and more money out of people who either believe you're an heiress or that you're going to marry them or somehow repay them with a huge amount of interest on top. But my friends, this story is about to hit whole new levels of crazy. So by January of 1909, after almost a decade of carrying out this series of fraudulent plans, the cracks in Violet's stories were beginning to show. Questions were starting to be asked. And those who had lent her money were growing impatient at the lack of any kind of return on their investments in her. Violet was starting to panic and decided she needed to get away from Rill and St. Asaph. Along with her sister Lillian and their chauffeur, who we only know as Watts, Violet jumped into one of her luxurious cars made by the now-defunct Belgian manufacturer Minerva and escaped to the North Wales coast. But this trip would not end up being a relaxing break away from the mounting pressures facing her back at home. In fact, it wouldn't be long before disaster struck. Just days before Violet's 25th birthday, there was an awful accident. It appeared as though Violet had been driving the Minerva car when she somehow swerved and hit a wall along the coastline, in the town of Pemine Mauer. Shortly after the collision occurred, a distraught Lillian had tumbled through the doors of a nearby pub accompanied by their chauffeur Watts, sobbing as she told the tale of how they had just been involved in a fatal car accident. She cried out that her sister Violet had been thrown through the windscreen on impact and had fallen from the car and into the crashing waves of the sea below. Watts confirmed Lillian's story, and as daylight broke the next morning, the car was soon discovered. The scene looked to be as described by Lillian. The car had clearly crashed through the seawall and was hanging around 50 metres above the ocean with the windscreen destroyed. Violet was not in the vehicle and couldn't be seen anywhere around the vicinity of the crash. All that was found was a very expensive hat by the designer Tam O'Shanta along with a diary that quite obviously belonged to Violet Charlesworth. To anyone observing the terrible sight of the accident, it was apparent that she must have perished in the choppy waters below. The only problem with this conclusion, however, was that it was a complete and utter fantasy. Violet had not plummeted to her death the night before. She was, in fact, very much alive. And now on the run and determined to get away from Wales and begin a new life free of the burdens brought on by her enormous labyrinth of lies. Now, in the aftermath of the apparent accident, a search for Violet's body was obviously carried out, but no trace of her was found. And before long, this was not the only strange element of the case that caused the authorities to become suspicious. Word of Violet's impending, and in some case active, troubles with her many creditors began to spread far and wide. And when these rumours reached the ears of the police in Mauer, they soon decided that things weren't quite adding up. Despite the fact that Violet's car crash and suspected death had made headlines around the world, from the USA to Australia, the investigation now pivoted to a manhunt. And just like with almost all scandalous cases, it took no time at all for the affair to earn a headline-worthy nickname. 
the Welsh Cliff Mystery. With this full investigation well underway, police decided to dig further into Violet's personal finances. And what they found explained a lot. It soon emerged that her attempts at investing in the stock market had been far from successful. Violet was not only making no money back from her ventures, she was actually over £27,000 in debt and we're talking 27 grand in 1909 money. By some calculations, that would equate to over four million pounds in 2023, which is pretty stunning. I can't even imagine the stress of someone chasing me down for a debt of 4,000 pounds if I didn't have it to hand, let alone four million. So with all of this in mind, Photographs of Violet were released to the newspapers and were printed alongside rundowns of the story so far, and citizens were asked to keep an eye out for anyone matching Violet's description. It was said that at the time of her potential disappearance, Violet had been wearing a crimson red cloak, and that that was something that people should look out for. As a result, sales of crimson cloaks, which were incredibly fashionable at the time, stalled completely as no one wanted to be mistaken for the wanted woman. Numerous sightings of Violet were reported to the papers, and in many cases these were reported as juicy breaking news stories. Of course, at the time, newspapers were the main source of media, and this was such a perfectly tantalising, developing story for them to keep track of. And with so much attention focused onto her, it didn't take long before a tip came in that would lead to Violet's eventual downfall. A young woman named Margaret MacLeod had checked into a hotel in Oban, which is a resort town up in Scotland. Either a member of staff at the hotel or a fellow guest had noticed that Margaret bore a striking resemblance to the heiress who was believed to have died along the North Wales coastline after a horrific car crash and they grew suspicious enough to report their sighting to the authorities. But her looks alone weren't the only strange thing going against Margaret. She had checked into the hotel at a very similar time to another young lady by the name of Lillian Coulson. When investigators got wind of this information, they travelled to Oban to interview the pair, but proving their true identities ended up being trickier than they imagined. Lillian flat out refused to admit that she knew Margaret at all, let alone confirm that she was really her sister, and Margaret herself adamantly denied that she was in fact Violet Charlesworth. Although police were able to obtain letters which had been written by Margaret, and confirm that the handwriting in them was bizarrely similar to samples of Violet's that they had in their possession, they didn't feel that they had quite enough evidence to arrest her. Clearly spooked by this encounter, the pair felt they'd had quite enough of being questioned in Oban and decided to hop on a train, together no less, to the city of Glasgow. When they arrived, they checked into the Central Station Hotel, sharing a room between them, which was as clear of an indication as any that the two were not in fact complete strangers. Now, if you were <clears throat> Margaret or Lillian, what would you have done next? Perhaps stayed in your hotel room, keeping a low profile until some of the heat on you lessened? Or maybe even tried to move on to a new location as soon as possible? 
Well, not this pair. The two were spotted around the city multiple times, with reporters following them wherever they went, to the extent that when it was time for them to check out of the hotel, they actually used the service lift in an attempt to exit the building, and, I assume, continue on to a new and more secret destination undetected. But alas, this was not meant to be. Now, if I told you that it was a journalist from one particular newspaper who ended up hounding the duo so persistently that they were eventually able to not only intercept them, but convince them to go to Edinburgh and give multiple interviews, which publication would you guess they worked for? If you said the Daily Mail, you would be correct. I guess some things never really change, do they? Anyway, after arriving in Edinburgh, and after some further prodding from the press, it wasn't long before Margaret cracked. She admitted that she was the infamous Violet Charlesworth, and once she started talking, she didn't seem to stop. She gave interviews to multiple journalists in which she revealed details about her life that shed more light on her upbringing and family situation. For example, you may have been wondering why I haven't mentioned her father when discussing Violet's adult life and exploits. This is because, as she told the reporters, he had moved to an undisclosed location in America some years earlier. This does help to explain why it was only her mother, Miriam, who seemed to be embroiled in Violet's schemes. She also revealed that she was actually the youngest of eight siblings, but that many of her brothers and sisters had died as infants, which is awful. She also painted a much clearer picture of what happened on the night of the car crash. According to Violet, the accident was real, and although she clearly hadn't been thrown into the sea, she claimed that she had somehow become separated from Lillian and Watts during the course of the ordeal. She was quoted as saying, I gave one wild look around, and then an impulse came into my head to get away from the horrible associations of the place. From the crash site, she walked to Conwy train station, which is definitely feasible, it's around four miles or six kilometres away, and she began her getaway from there. She was alone when she boarded a train from Conwy to Crewe, which is in the English county of Cheshire, which is actually my home county, and from Crewe she went on to Scotland. It's not clear at what point Lillian joined her, and there are actually a few odd little inconsistencies with her too. For example, although Lillian and Violet are listed as sisters in their baptism records, in a census document they are noted as being cousins. It's not really important, but more so just mysterious, and makes me even more intrigued about Lillian and her motives for being so involved with this whole plot. Anyway, after the truth about Violet's dodgy dealings came to light, it's no surprise that she was arrested. But she wasn't the only member of her family to be accused in the string of frauds. Whilst Lillian was not implicated in any of the criminal proceedings, their mother Miriam was, and the pair stood trial accused of conspiracy to obtain money by false pretenses, and, of course, actually gaining money by false pretenses. During the course of the trial, a huge amount of evidence came to the fore, and amongst all of this were letters that Violet had sent to those she had fooled into thinking she was going to marry them. One of the letters that was presented as evidence was sent from Violet to the real doctor, Edward Hughes-Jones. In it, she wrote, You can well all my fortune, when I get it, will be yours as much as mine. It cuts me to the heart to ask you for money. I, who will have £7,000 a year and an estate, 
It is cruel, bitterly cruel, but it is all for love's sake. And now, Eddie, my own, ever your devoted and someday wife, Violet. Yikes. But despite all of the evidence, both Violet and Miriam pleaded not guilty. Although I'm sure it will come as no surprise to find out that their plea was in vain. Both women were found guilty of the various counts of fraud in February of 1910 and were initially sentenced to five years of hard labour, although these sentences were eventually reduced to two years. Both Violet and Miriam were imprisoned in Aylesbury, which is a town in Buckinghamshire in England, and were eventually released in 1912, when it's believed they headed back up to Scotland to try and rebuild their lives. And it looks that they could have been successful in doing so, or at least in staying out of trouble and out of the public eye as there are very few details available about what they did after being released from prison. All we do know is that, according to several sources, including an article on findmypast.co.uk, Miriam passed away in Lancashire in 1920, just eight years after her release, and it's possible that Violet died in Stoke-on-Trent in 1957. The record relating to her death is in the name of May Charlesworth, but we know that this was her birth name, so that would add up. There is, however, one lasting reminder of Violet's extraordinary early life that remains along the cliffside in Penmaimaua. The area where she was originally thought to have lost her life has since been known as Violet's Leap. And there's even a band from North Wales by the same name who I can only assume took inspiration from this wild tale. So what are my thoughts on Violet's strange but true life story? Well, I think it's no coincidence that she decided to do something as extreme as faking her own death just before her 25th birthday. As if you remember, this was the deadline that her mother had noted that she was due to inherit sums of money from some of her various benefactors. But clearly this was never going to materialise. So her options were either to confess to being a fraudster or to run away from her problems. And in the end, she took it several steps further than this, to say the least. I must say though, I do wonder how much influence her mother Miriam had on her actions. And I say this because she started her cons at such a young age. I'm sure most of us regret certain things we did when we were 16 and look back as adults and think, what on earth was I doing? But Violet's mother was an adult and she still encouraged and aided in all her daughter did. So whilst I don't think Violet was innocent by any means, I think the pair did deserve the same level of punishment as one another. Of course, history remembers the beautiful socialite, not least because of the car crash element, but I think Miriam's role was also hugely significant. Also, I know I've mentioned Anna Delvey a few times, and if you have no clue who I'm talking about, I would definitely recommend either watching Inventing Anna or reading some of the many in-depth and fascinating articles about her, but it's pretty wild how many parallels there are between her and Violet. Anna never faked her own death, of course, but it's the whole idea of lying and defrauding people in order to raise their social status. And the further into it they got, the more people believed them. And so the more money came their way from investors of one kind or another. Both were glamorous, aspirational figures in their respective social circles and seemed to be motivated by building lives of luxury for themselves. 
And spoiler alert, they were both caught for their crimes in the end. I'm sure there's something very profound to be discovered in both of these stories about greed and how it can be part of human nature, regardless of the century or the corner of the world we're in. But to me, it's also about how quickly illusions can shatter and the consequences that can have. In a way, I wish there was more to know about Violet's later life. But perhaps the fact there isn't shows that some lessons were eventually learned. I really hope you enjoyed hearing this story as much as I enjoyed researching it. I don't know what it is about fraudsters, but these cases really get me hooked in. I think it's because once everything is all said and done, watching the progression of how one initial action can end up turning into something so off the wall and escalate so quickly is truly fascinating. I can't wait to hear what you think about this story. Do you think Violet and Miriam were equally to blame for the series of actions? Do you think Lillian had more of an involvement than we realise? I always love to hear all of your thoughts on every episode topic, and I'll be telling you about all of the ways you can get in touch in just a moment. But first, it's time for our weekly outro feature, Weird Media. And I am far too excited about this one. So if you're a fellow 90s kid like me, you may find this instalment of Weird Media particularly interesting, as it's a bit of a blast from the past. In the year 2000, a series started on the children's TV programme at CITV called Grizzly Tales for Gruesome Kids, and I almost don't know how to describe it to you if you've not seen it, but I'll do my best. Each episode featured different mini-stories, or perhaps one big story, that were cautionary tales of some kind, in this really distinctive animated style, and many of them were genuinely horrifying. But as a kid, it kind of felt like you were being allowed to watch something that you shouldn't be allowed to. Like, they were too scary for their target audience, really. But for a child like me, who loved weird and spooky things, it was genuinely the best show ever. And after I made a TikTok video referencing the show last year, someone informed me that loads of the episodes are available to watch on YouTube, and you better believe that I have devoured them and they are still amazing to this day. There was a narrator character who was this older man who had a pet spider, and he was a cinema projectionist. These parts were in a stop motion style, and I think the scenes were constructed from clay models, it's very cool. Each episode started with a little introduction from the man and the spider, and then he would talk the audience through each tale. Quite a few of the stories bordered on being a bit disturbing, but that was kind of the point. And I often think it probably wouldn't be broadcast today, but I thought it was incredible. So if it sounds like your cup of tea, feel free to look it up on YouTube. If you search Grizzly Tales for Gruesome Kids, there are a few channels which have uploaded the clips. And if you do remember the show from being a child yourself, I would love to know your own memories of it. Were there any particular stories that you still recall to this day? Did it freak you out or did you look forward to each episode? Have I just brought back a memory you'd completely forgotten about? Do feel free to let me know. Right, it is shout out time for the wonderful sources that helped me put together my research for our episode today. There was a brilliant article from Wales Online by Branwyn Jones from September 2022. Another fantastic piece from North Wales Live on the Daily Post. 
That was by Dominic Moffat from January of 2022. There were also some news clippings from the time which I found on Papers Past, which is a news archive I believe is based in New Zealand. And then there was that great article from findmypast.co.uk, which is a genealogy and records website. So there are multiple ways you can get in touch on social media. We have both the private discussion group and main podcast page on Facebook. If you search things are about to get weird on there, you'll find both of those and you can request to join the private group. On Instagram, our handle is at things get weird podcast and on Twitter, it's at about to get weird then of course you can always pop me an email at thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com with all of your thoughts and your own weird and wonderful stories too. And finally, there's the new edition of our Patreon, which as I mentioned, will be linked in the show notes for this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would be massively grateful for a rating or review wherever you listen. I know there's a star rating system on Spotify and you can do written reviews on Apple Podcasts, but I'm sure most other podcast players have something similar too. So anything at all along those lines is super helpful. A huge thank you to anyone who shows their support for the podcast this way and a big thank you for listening today too. You are all marvellous. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.